Good morning. Thank you for being with us today, especially with the circumstances being what they are. Um, I, I'm the only staff member here, and there's usually a lot of other people sitting over here by Jaden, and they're all gone too. So <laughs> it's just out of an abundance of caution. We want to uh, uh, be careful. We want to um, help everyone to feel uh, safe and so... Uh, thus, I'm the only one here. And uh, after the service, um, I'll just step back out and uh, go back into the front, and then I'll take off that way, so I won't be able to uh, interact with you today uh, afterwards. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Romans 16. Eh, let's start with actually Romans 1. You think I'm joking, but I'm not. Go to Romans 1, please. I've timed it, and you can read through it in about 45 minutes, so that'll be faster than me preaching. So we'll just read, no. We are going to read from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then turn to chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God 
to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we get to be here today. Grateful that that we want to be here today because of what Christ has done. Father, we rejoice that you have made yourself known to us. That you have given us your word. That you have given us your son who gave himself to redeem us. We are grateful that you've given us your spirit who lives within us. We're grateful that you've saved us to be members together in the body of Christ. Father, we rejoice that we get to be together. We rejoice that we get to have your word open in front of us. And we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we look at these final verses in the book of of Romans, that we would see what is here. That you, by your spirit, would teach us from this text about your gospel, about your son, about your word. So we ask that you would minister to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can you believe it? We made it to the end of Romans. And it's only been two and a half years. I don't know why people complain. That's, uh, it could have been a whole lot longer. And at times it was much, uh, very tempting to make it longer. But we are at the close of this book. And I, in uh, preparation for this message and as we've been nearing the end of uh, Romans chapter 16, I've been thinking back to uh, some of the uh, opening uh, sermons that I preached on the on the topic of Romans. Why study Romans? Why study Romans now? Uh, what what is there to glean from Romans and all of that? Uh, opening up those uh, those questions, and I trust that we've been able to uh, work through many of those questions. I'm I'm aware of questions uh, that relate to our times and the world that we face right now, and and uh, the the philosophy of the world and things going on in, uh, in our day and age and in our culture, I'm aware of questions that those things raise that Romans answers that we have not yet gotten to. And so uh, I do envision a few more sermons just looking at the implications of Romans for us, not working through per, maybe passage by passage the way we've done, but trying and, uh, to see what the uh, course, the teaching, the theology of Romans would have us think and do in our day and age. And so though we're reading the last verses of Romans today, this is my confession to you that we are not yet done with Romans. So don't despair, okay? I know some of you were despairing that what are we going to do now if we finish Romans? What could we possibly look at? If you see um, the heading probably above these verses, I'm I'm not going to look at verses uh, 21 through 23 and uh, uh, and even 24. I'm not going to look at those mainly because those are the greetings. I want to notice, first of all, in 22, actually, that Tertius is the one who is actually the scribe, the amanuensis, writing the letter down. So Paul would be dictating, and Tertius was the one who actually wrote it down. So uh, when we talk about the original, the original would have been what Tertius wrote down, having been dictated to him by Paul. Um, but uh, So you see Tertius uh, saying, I, you know, I'm the one who wrote this letter, and I say hi also. What we want to focus on is 
25 and 26 and 27, which has a heading in my Bible, the doxology. The doxology. And of course, uh, many of you know what doxology means, and as soon as I say the word, the song appears in your mind. Praise God to whom, uh, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below, etc. Doxology is the notion of giving glory to God for what He has done. It's it's our recognizing His glory and ascribing it to Him, pointing back towards Him and seeing uh, His glory. And particularly in this doxology, and right here, we see that the, the glory, uh, God's glory is perhaps most clearly put on display in His redemption of sinners. God's redemption of sinners is the most glorious thing that we could celebrate. And it is glorifying to Him for us to ponder and to spend time thinking about and praying about and working through and meditating on His redemption of us. That's glorifying to God. And this doxology that we have here at the conclusion of Romans is focused on exactly that topic. It's focused on our redemption. And the reason that I read verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1 is if you noticed repeated words, uh, there were many repeated words from chapter 1 that show up again here in chapter 16. And that, that's a figure of speech that's like the idea of bookends. It's an inclusio. that He's introducing concepts here and then he's closing out with the same concepts. That tells you what is uh, being written in between. It points out to you what the themes have been. And so we're going to work through and see those themes here in the doxology that he has labored and he has explained and he has shown for us in, in detail. Sometimes maybe it has seemed like excruciating detail, certain aspects of the gospel. And now he wants to glorify God for those very aspects of the gospel that we have been working through. And so our passage today starts off with pointing to the strength of faith. The strength of faith. I want to notice before we move on at all that it's, it's faith in Christ. It's not just faith. There is a notion in our day and age uh, amongst Christians sometimes and, and even frequently in the world that there is something powerful about faith itself. That it's some sort of substance or it's some sort of power or, or it is something that will help you in life or whatever. Faith has as much power as the object of, its, uh, of that faith has. So when we talk about faith, we are not speaking in the abstract. Oh, just have faith. The smoke will eventually go away. Just have faith, right? Well, of course, the smoke will eventually go away, but it wasn't your faith that had anything to do with it, right? The sun will come out tomorrow, right? Just have faith. Well, of course the sun's going to come out tomorrow, and your faith did not accomplish that. It had nothing to do with it. General faith, general hope is not what's being discussed here. We're talking about faith in Christ. And since our faith is located in Christ, the person, our faith is powerful because He is powerful. So though it's not explicit in your outline, we're talking about the strength of faith and all those things. We're not talking about some abstract concept of faith. We're talking about faith, trust in Christ Himself as our Savior. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you 
according to my gospel, he says. This, the strength of faith is ours by means of Paul's gospel. By means of Paul's gospel. He says a couple of times, my gospel, my gospel, and he's not contrasting his gospel with Peter's gospel or, or Matthew's gospel or something like that. I, I think what, what he's talking about is just how dear to him is this gospel. When he talks of my gospel, he, he can't even leave it out there as if it was the object of study. The gospel out here. This uh, equation, this concept, this, this notion that's, that's abstract and separate. When Paul thinks about the gospel, it's almost as if he must say it's my gospel because it has implications for me. It, it gives me life. And so he talks about his own gospel. And of course, it's fitting that he would reference the gospel here at the conclusion of chapter 16 as he's spent all these 16 chapters laying out for us in detail the gospel itself, how it works, what it means, what it is, what it does, and the implications in our lives. And so it makes sense that he would say that here. Romans itself is the most thorough, the most extensive treatment of the gospel in the Bible. There are other places that talk about the gospel. There are other places uh, everywhere that point to our salvation in Christ, the fact that we've been redeemed by faith in Christ. You can find that everywhere, everywhere. But when you open up Romans, it's like a library on the subject. He talks about it again and again, and he explains in detail this aspect and that aspect. The depth of it is, is incomparable. Bringing up subject matters that that, uh, that may be discussed in other places, but not to the depth that they are in Romans and the implications for our lives. What it means that, that God saves sinners for His own glory. That's what Romans has been about. And so, he says that we are able to be strengthened. God is the one who is able to strengthen us according to Paul's Gospel. So it's by means of Paul's gospel, and he says, secondly, it's by means of Christian preaching. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This isn't a reference to the preaching that Jesus did. That's not primarily what he's talking about here, though. Of course, that's a part of it. His, he's talking more broadly than that. He's talking about preaching Christ. Describing and laying out for people Christ and what Christ has done. His, his life of perfect obedience in the face of opposition, in the face of hatred, in the face of people who misunderstood him, in the, in the face of his own friends being unfaithful and not understanding him. His, his life of obedience despite temptation, honoring to God always. And then, of course, his death on the cross, where he, an innocent man, the, the, the first ever innocent man, the only one who's innocent, goes to the cross. The, the place of execution for sin. And he goes there not because of his own sin. He had none, but he went there because of my sin, because of your sin. And Paul says here that we are strengthened and God strengthens us by means of Christian preaching. Christian preaching. Preaching Christ. And so Romans, from beginning to end, has been about Christ. Christ's redemption of a helpless people who were actually at odds with God, at enmity with God. And Jesus redeems them 
by his own life, by his own death and resurrection. And so he's saying, Paul is saying here at the end of this great letter that God strengthens us according to Paul's gospel and, and by means of the preaching of Christ. And so we preach Christ. We, we people, all people, need to hear is Christ. They need to hear about Him and what He has done. They need to hear what He has accomplished. That He has met God's standard that is unmeetable by you and by me. That Jesus has met that standard. They need to hear about His death on behalf of sinners, paying the penalty for them. Christians need to hear it because we tend to forget, don't we? Very often we may think the gospel is the doorway that opens that lets us into the Christian life. And now we walk past the gospel because we're inside the door. And what else is there about the Christian life? Right? And so maybe we want to think about other things. We want to move on past the gospel. We want to be done with that beginning stuff. And we want to talk about the more mature things. Paul says here, the the way God strengthens us is by means of the gospel. By means of the preaching of Christ. Christians need to hear Christ preached because we tend to forget And we, as Christians, need to continue to behold our Savior. We talked in Sunday school this morning about having our eyes fixed on what Christ has done. That we, in fact, even now, still need that Savior. We are not redeemed and then translated into glory. We are not redeemed and then made perfect and sinless. We are redeemed and we continue as sinners who have been redeemed. And thus we continue to sin. We still have need for that Savior. But our own pride and life can can tend to cover that over so that we forget about that. And we think, well, if I just do the right things, and I, of course, can do the right things, I can make God happy. We need to see Christ and see what perfection is in Him and see that He did that for us. His perfection is credited to our account. His death counts for us. Christians need to hear Christ preached. Non-Christians need to hear Christ preached. They need to hear the gospel proclaimed so that they can be saved. So that they can understand their own great debt and need before God. Of the many problems... Non-Christians face. An enormous one is that they do not understand their plight before God. They do not understand the relationship between them and God, that they themselves are sinful, not just a little bit sick, not just uh, needing a, you know an upgrade, but they are sinful, dead in their trespasses and sins, and God is all the way holy. That puts them in a bad position because God is also just. Unbelievers need to hear that. They need to hear, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble before God, who has all power over me, the one to whom I am accountable. They need to hear that. Non-Christians need to hear about their plight before God. And then they need to look to Christ and hear that He is one who came on the scene, the Son of God Himself, and obeyed where they haven't. And died so they wouldn't have to. Strengthening comes by means of Christian preaching. 
And it's made known by revelation alone. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. The revelation, the making known of the mystery. This strength to us, this, this strength by means of the gospel, by means of the preaching of Christ comes to us only by revelation. It must be revealed to us by God. No amount of philosophizing, no amount of, of thinking together, of fumbling around in the dark would lead a person to, to divine the gospel apart from revelation. It requires God's revelation. It requires God peeling back the curtain, as it were, to show man's condition and God's solution in Christ to that condition. But you say Psalm 19. Psalm 19 talks about, uh, it says these words, it opens with these words, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The heavens declare. The, the, the creation tells us about God. So wouldn't that let us be saved? Isn't that uh, God communicating to us in a non-special revelation kind of fashion? Well, that uh, great chapter, Psalm 19 the first six verses of it talk about what can be known based upon creation. What is revealed by the stars, by the heavens, by the earth. Things that we can know. Things that we can understand. But it's not until you get to verse 7 that it begins to talk about the soul and your heart and redemption. In verse 7, he starts talking about redemption. He starts talking about the soul. It starts talking about our relationship with God. And that's when he has moved from talking about general revelation out there. And he has shifted and he's now talking about special revelation, the Word of God. Only in the Word of God do we find about salvation. Only the Word of God points us to Jesus Christ in whom there is salvation. So even Psalm 19 itself indicates to us Revelation is required in order for us to be saved. The London Baptist Confession, excuse me, the Catechism, question number three, asks this, how may we know there is a God? And hopefully my kids at home are answering this question even now. But the answer is, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God. But His Word and Spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. We can learn that there is a God, that He has standards, and we don't meet them. We can't learn the solution apart from the special revelation of God's Word. Which, of course, is what Paul said back in chapter 10, verses 14 and following. He says, How then will they call on Him? in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what He heard from us. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. So there's application for us. When we come to church, we come to hear of Christ. We come to hear of what Jesus has done. 
We need to hear it again and again. We need to see how it applies in our lives in different aspects. We need to come to church to hear of Christ proclaimed. And as we do, we see that we are changed. As we mentioned in Sunday school from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Or again in Romans 10, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We, Christians, need to behold Christ. And as we behold Christ and as we trust in Him, as we look to Him, as we love Him more and more, we are shaped and conformed to become more and more like Him by His Holy Spirit. And so there's a second application. Because outside of these walls is a, is a world dying apart from this good news. So we need to take the gospel to them. Take the gospel to your neighbor. Take the gospel to your lost family members. Go show them this treasure that you have found. Go proclaim to them the gospel that you have learned and are learning. Take the gospel to them as well. Paul says, God is able to strengthen us by faith. There is strength in faith. Secondly, I want to focus on the mystery of faith. He says that, uh, that God strengthens us according to Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. What is the mystery of faith? We use the word mystery usually in a different sense than the New Testament uses it, particularly Paul. When we talk about something being a mystery, what we usually mean is, I don't get it, right? That's a mystery to me, right? It's Greek to me. I don't understand how it works, right? It's a mystery. Or perhaps it's something that is unknowable. I don't get it because it's ungettable. I don't understand it because it cannot be understood. And that's a mystery. That's not the way Paul uses it. When Paul uses the word mystery, he uses it just like he does here. The mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. A mystery is something that was formerly hidden, but is now revealed. When Paul uses that word, he's talking about something that was present in the Old Testament, but was concealed, but now, because of Christ, is made plain is made clear to all of us. So anytime you're reading in the New Testament and you read the word mystery, that's what's being discussed. Whether it's the mystery that the Gentiles will be included, or whether, like here, it's the mystery of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. It's something that was present in the Old Testament, but concealed. Jesus coming on the scene makes it clear to us that it's even there in the Old Testament. Of course, he's talking about that mystery of the gospel. And he says it's revealed by means of the Old Testament. It was kept secret for long ages, verse 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. The prophetic writings, he's not talking about his own writings. He's not talking about New Testament writings. He's talking about the Old Testament. This gospel that he proclaims, he proclaimed by means of the Old Testament. 
the prophetic writings. So uh, one of the first ways, one of the early ways that I learned to share the gospel was the Romans road, right? Well, Paul was just finishing writing the Romans road, okay? So he didn't have that to work with. New Testament Christians did not have the Romans road to work with to share the gospel. They had the scriptures. By that, they meant the Old Testament. And they shared the gospel from the Old Testament. The point being, the Old Testament testifies, just like the New Testament does, to faith in Christ. And of course, when we were going through chapter 4 of Romans, we saw that Paul pulled out a couple of key Old Testament examples, Abraham and David, as those in the Old Testament who were saved by faith as well. And so he's saying the Old Testament contains this same story. But we just didn't see it before because Christ was not on the scene. Now that Christ is on the scene, and we know that all things point towards Him, we know that all things are summed up in Him, now when we go back having Christ and understanding Him and we look at the Old Testament, we see that it points to Christ Himself. And so there's a point of application here for us. And that is, continue learning your Bible. Continue reading it. Continue studying Many people think that, that you need to go to the Old Testament as if the New Testament didn't exist. You need to go to the Old Testament, you need to read it and learn it as best you can, and then having that under your belt, now you shift to the New Testament, you need to read the New Testament now in light of the Old Testament. Well, I want to tell you, uh, that's foolish. Why would we ever read anything as if Christ didn't exist? Why would we ever read anything as if Christ had not come? Because Christ has come. And so we start with the New Testament and the understanding of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of it all, and now we say, okay, now I know the fulfillment. Let's go back and look. And we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And so we need to learn our Bibles. We need to read and read and read. We need to study. We need to be here and study together and learn God's Word. Paul said the the, the mystery was kept secret for long ages, but it's now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. The Bible points us to Christ. And I want to notice that at this, uh, at this point that it also does so at God's command. The prophetic writings have been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Flip over real quick to Galatians chapter 4 familiar passage. Galatians chapter 4. Starting in uh, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, when God decided the time was right, that's when He sent His Son. Not before. And God wasn't waiting for some world events to line up or something like that. He decided, I will send my Son at this time. When the fullness of time had come, His Son came. Redemption came. The message came. And so we see that it was at God's command that the message came. And even more than that, if you think about the Great Commission, 
that's literally Jesus' command, right? To go and make disciples of all nations and baptize and teach them. Right? So the command is there. The Great Commission is given. It's actually God's command to go and make disciples of all nations. Right? So at the command of God it comes. But even more than that, at the command of God it comes when you think of the book of Acts. Right? The very beginning of the book of Acts, everyone's gathered together in Jerusalem. They're told that that there will come a time when power comes on them and they will go and they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? That time will come. Well, the Holy Spirit comes. In chapter 2, they're gathered in Jerusalem and there are thousands coming to Christ. In the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, they're gathered right there in Jerusalem and there are thousands and persecution begins. Well, suddenly, the church leaves Jerusalem and goes to the ends of the earth at God's command. It wasn't just God speaking and saying, hey, go and take the gospel. He actually orchestrated persecution in their lives so as to drive them to the ends of the earth with the gospel. The gospel goes forth at God's command. He doesn't just give the instructions and hope they will be followed. He sends it forth in power, even by his providential sovereign working in history, even over persecutions. And think about yourself when the gospel came to you. Some of you had the benefit of growing up in a gospel-proclaiming church. You heard the gospel from an early age. Your parents taught you. Your parents pointed you to Christ. That was God's command that you hear the gospel in that, in that situation. Some of us heard the gospel in very different situations. Maybe it was much later in life. Maybe it was after we had already accumulated years of regret. We had run the wrong direction. We had served ourselves. We had heaped up our sin, and the gospel came to us at some point, if you're in Christ. That was at God's command that that happened, not the year before. I heard the gospel when I did, and not the year before, and that was at God's command. He's sovereign over those things, over the going forth of the gospel. And so as you're sharing with your neighbor, as you're sharing with a family member who's lost, you could have great confidence that that gospel message is being proclaimed at the command of God. Not just because Jesus said to do it, but because God has orchestrated the events in which you are proclaiming that gospel. The word goes forth at God's command. Thirdly, the obedience of faith. Hopefully you heard that phrase as we were reading through uh, chapter 1. And uh, verse 5, and it's in your notes there, it's the theme, really, of Paul's ministry. But this is what he says back in chapter 1. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for what purpose? To what end? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. From the very beginning, Paul's ministry, Paul's message has been about the obedience of faith. And that's been a theme of this book. That's one of the reasons I read uh, the first 17 verses of chapter 1, is to point out that this is a common theme throughout the things that Paul is talking about in our passage today. He has begun to talk about 16 chapters ago. Back in chapter 1, he summarized 
the direction Romans was going, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So that's a theme of Paul's ministry, but the question remains for us, what is the obedience of faith? Now, if you really remember well, and if you think back hard, two and a half years ago we talked about what the obedience of faith is. But just in case, on the off chance, you're not able to pull it out at this moment, what is the obedience of faith? Well, it's a difficult question because the word of, two little, two little uh, letters there, can mean a whole bunch of different things. What does of mean here? Does obedience of faith mean the obedience which is <clears throat> or consists in faith? In, or, in other words, does that mean obeying the gospel means believing the gospel? Is that what it means, the obedience of faith? Or does it mean the faith which obeys, like an obedient kind of faith? Or does it mean the obedience which stems from faith? And there are other options I could go on with, but I won't. I will uh, quote here from Calvin. He says, It is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. It doesn't, it doesn't go alone. And that's kind of the point of the obedience of faith here. What we've seen in Romans is that true faith in Christ results in the kind of change to one's identity and nature that results in true obedience from the heart empowered by the Holy Spirit. The gospel we're talking about here is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card here, do, do this thing, give me your, your quarter, and you can have the ticket, and you will get out of jail free. It's not just a contract. Hey, I signed the contract. I'm good to go. It's, it's so much more than that. What, what, what God does in the gospel, when he brings about our forgiveness of sin by faith in Christ, when he brings about righteousness credited to our account by faith in Christ, he also creates us anew, and he makes us alive in Christ. He adopts us as his own children. He gives us a new want to. He makes us new, new creation, as Paul says. And thus, the very faith that connects us to Christ and by which we receive forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ, and by which our sin is placed upon Christ, that very same faith is the means by which He makes us anew. So that we are now new creatures in Christ, and so we serve Him gladly from the heart. That is this obedience of faith. Faith is what... God uses to attach us to Christ and then he changes everything. And so we actually do obey the gospel by believing it and we become obedient from the heart because of the change that he brings about within us. And that's the purpose of Paul's ministry is to preach that gospel, to proclaim that truth, that salvation to a dying world bring about this obedience of faith. And it results, secondly, in uh, glory to God alone. This is 
now been uh, disclosed and through the prophet, uh, prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. This results in glory to God alone. Without the gospel, we find in this book, not only would we not be saved, but we wouldn't recognize, we wouldn't appreciate how glorious our saving God really is. Or to flip that around, the gospel message in Romans tells us of our salvation and is good to us on the one hand, and it magnifies glory to God on the other hand, as all of creation, and especially we, the redeemed, see God for how glorious He truly is. He is glorified in that. And that is for our good to see Him as glorious, to see Him as wonderful. He receives all glory for this salvation that we have in Him. And so, something for us to ponder for a moment at this point. Let us give glory to God alone for our salvation, for His work in our life. Glory to Him alone. The question, is there any part of your salvation that you credit to yourself? Probably not consciously. Probably not consciously. But to the degree that you do, consciously or unconsciously, You are robbing God of glory and missing out on a true appreciation of the free gift that salvation really is. You're missing out on the appreciation of it. You don't get to revel in it like you ought. And so, we preach Christ. We preach Christ. We don't preach three ways to be a better husband. Some of you wives might wish sometimes that we would preach three or 13 ways to be a better husband or five tips for a more powerful prayer life. Those aren't our messages. That's not what we preach. We focus on Christ crucified, and we do so on purpose because of this passage, because of passages like it that point us to Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That that could read, Jews demand signs, and Greeks Greeks seek wisdom. And often, evangelicals look for lists. But we preach Christ crucified. What we need to hear is Christ. Only the message of Christ can save sinners. And only the message of Christ can produce a believer in, in a believer a greater love for Him and faith in Him, which the Holy Spirit uses to conform us to Christ as He brings about the obedience of faith in us. So we need to preach Christ. We need to hear of Christ. As we've been discussing in our Sunday school class all summer, and if you have not been to that, I encourage you to to get that book that we were going through, Bookends of the Christian Life, read through that. We are justified by faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are also sanctified by faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, we preach Christ. And we lift Him up for everyone to see Him as He really is. 
And as we do that, as we lift up Christ before us, we love Him more. Our faith in Him grows. We value Him more. And we trust Him more. We look to Him more. And we rely on Him more. And His finished work. And as we do so, we discover a deeply rooted peace with God. A gratitude towards Him. We want to obey and we want to please the one who's given us everything. And his spirit whom he has given us empowers actual change and actual obedience in our lives. The obedience of faith. And so our final point of application. Give glory to God for his holistic saving work that not only forgives sinners for having lived like hell, but also fits sinners for heaven. That's the gospel that we've been looking at in the book of Romans. I struggle how to conclude, how to wrap up a series on Romans, how to finish the last verse and close the book, because Romans is really never closed to us. And I don't just mean I'm going to preach on and on in it, though that may likely be the case. Romans opens for us the gospel. And folks, you and I need the gospel. We need to think about it. We need to remember it. We need to be changed by it. He finishes with a doxology. To God, the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. May that be true, and it may, may it be true from our lips and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to believe that we have uh, finished the last verse of this great epistle. It's hard to believe that we have looked at so many subjects, and yet all of them point to Christ or flow from Christ. All of them hold Jesus up before us and this salvation that he gives us by faith in Christ. We give you glory for what you have done for us in Christ, for this salvation that we have in Christ. We give you glory for your son, Jesus. We recognize our own fallenness, our own lack we recognize that as we read in Sunday school, we are worms in ourselves. And we rejoice that Jesus Christ, your Son, came to this earth to redeem worms like us. To become one of us. To identify with us. To make us His own. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this salvation that's ours. May we give you glory for it. May we spread this gospel far and wide. May we take it to a dying world around us. May we remind one another of it in casual conversation, in, in, in non-so-casual conversation. May we point one another to you and give you glory for the redemption that's ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. To the King of Kings, the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. If you want to pray with someone, there'll be a family up here who would love to pray with you this morning. Otherwise, God bless you all. You're dismissed.